0: How can you say no to that? A couple things. Uh, April twenty eighth is today, so if you are uh, planning to come to our newcomers reception, would you get out your new church app and register for that? Uh, And uh, secondly, uh, this wasn't announced, but is in your bulletin. Next Sunday will be a uh, family Sunday where. Uh, there will be no Lifehouse kids taking place down the hallway. Uh, you'll be bringing your kids here. For some of you, I realize that terrifies you, uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be a little bit of a shortened service uh, for us. Uh, this is in place of, and you know, before you get your pitchforks out and stuff, this is in place of uh, church outside. So we are are not doing church outside uh, this year, which we've historically done. Uh, We've run out of room out there. That's one of the reasons. Uh, But the other reason is typically it's a Columbia fundraiser. We've just had a Columbia fundraiser, and so we're not going to be doing that. Um, We are, however, next Sunday going to have uh, a shaved ice truck uh, that's going to be parked right out those doors right there. And, and so in between services and at the end of second service, uh, everybody gets free shaved ice. So that's our way of bribing you out of not having uh, church outside. Um, well, we're going we're gonna to get after the message this morning. I, in, the, in the last few weeks, I've been on this kick where I invite you. Uh, I give you a question. And then you share your answer with someone here. And, uh, and so on the way to church this morning, I asked my wife, I said, what, what's a good question? I, I shared with her what I was going to be talking about. And I'm like, what's a good question? And she said, Ryan, you don't, have to, you don't have to do that every Sunday. Uh, and I said, why? It's amazing. Like people are interacting. It's fun. And, and, and people like it. And she's like, not, ev- not everybody likes it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, who doesn't like it? And she's like, I don't like it. Sorry that I'm making everybody talk to one another. God forbid we get to know each other. So this morning, I'm not going to make you talk to your neighbor, because obviously, no, stop it. Stop clapping. But what I am going to do is make you think, which is actually sometimes harder than actually talking to your neighbor. But I want you to think about a time in your life where you've asked the question why? Why me? Why why now? Why why him? Why her? Why this? Like think about a time in your life where you were asking the question, why? Because oftentimes what happens is is when we start asking the question, why, it inevitably shifts into, uh, into this question where all of a sudden we're, we're saying to God, why weren't you here? Why didn't you intervene in this situation? And then it turns from the question why to where. Where were you? Where are you? Those are are questions that in the midst of difficult circumstances, in in the midst of being alone, in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss, we find ourselves asking these questions, and if we're not careful, we'll eventually shift those questions Towards God and wonder where He is. It's hard to uh, figure out how to follow Christ as middle class people in North America. Like, like I think we could all agree that to, to some extent, I don't know what the statistics are, but we're we're probably in the middle class-ish. Maybe. Lower middle class, maybe upper middle class, but you know, but probably there's not a whole lot of you know, one percenters here. I mean, obviously, worldwide we would be, but but I'm talking about in North America, and so I think if we could agree with that, I think we could also agree that at times it's hard for us to understand what it means to follow Jesus, it's hard to discern what. What we read in in the Bible when it says things like dying to self, when it when it talks about um, this sacrifice that's supposed to take place, and yet we find ourselves really not sacrificing a whole lot. In any given situation or circumstance, we find ourselves struggling with these words that we we read, and and so it's like even in like circumstances like do I. Do I pursue a job promotion or is this like selfish ambition and vain conceit? Do I I take a vacation in the Bahamas or is this a failure to, to be rich towards God? Is there a failure to give to someone in need? Because if I look around my life, I have all of these material possessions and and even to the point that it's like, well, can I even buy a, a pass that's ridiculously expensive to go skiing? Or, or is this like gross self-indulgence? See, most Christians, we, we feel stuck in this. We started out on this journey and, and somewhere, somehow we got stranded. Stranded. And we we feel like we're we're living on this border where we sit and we swap rumors about God. Or worse, we just stop talking about God. We we could talk about everything else with ease, but but if we're charged with the task of talking about God, all of a sudden our tongues get thick and we start to stutter. It's like a teenage kid getting ready to talk to a girl for the first time, we just go mute. And we don't know how to talk. And this. We feel that most of our faith amounts to just this. This right here. Just talking. And not doing. Talking but not living. In fact, maybe some of us feel like maybe we've just joined a talking cult. Where all we do is just talk, talk, talk. Where is the expression of life? Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and and we celebrated the freedom that Christ brings into our life. And my question for us is, as North American middle-class people, where is the expression of the freedom and of the life that God has given us? (laughs) Caroline's putting her sweater on. As you can tell, we got our air conditioning fixed. We can hang meat in here now. Turns out they weren't broken. Somebody went to the back of our building and flipped off all of the, the breakers of our uh, internal air blowers. Apparently I got enemies. Where's the, the expression of this freedom that we celebrate, that we talk all about? Where is this expression? I wonder why we worry still about downturns in the stock market, why we get angry at drivers flying down Blanco or Wilderness Oak or wherever you live? Why is it that I care more about my landscaping than I do the soul of the kid who just picked the roses off of my rose bushes? Why can I sustain the capacity to explore and entertain in my mind for long periods of time what I would do with $10 million if I were to win the lottery, and yet to just spend 30 seconds in prayer seems like a chore? The most wondrous, amazing, breathtaking truth that I've ever contemplated in my life is that the creator of my soul, that God interacts and wants a relationship with me, and yet somehow a fly tapping on the window will distract me from that amazing truth. Ten minutes of my morning devotions that I set aside where I get to apply this This amazing truth into my life actually seems like a sacrifice. And sometimes, honestly, if I'm being completely truthful, feels like a nuisance. As a pastor, I hear all the time about people who want to have this deeper relationship and this richer experience with Christ, but they they find themselves instead wasting away their days that days go by in a blur, and, and almost in that same sentence, there are times where it feels like they drag on in this dreary redundancy. We feel like we're in, a episode, or we're, we're in the movie Groundhog's Day where every single day seems to be the same. We're in jobs that we dislike and relationships that confuse us and hurt us. We have these financial worries and health problems. What it all boils down to is there's a part of us that in this life wants to find fulfillment. We want to be fulfilled. And so we look in all of these capacities, we look to our job, we look to our relationships and people, and we're hoping that in some way they will bring fulfillment into our life. And we carry this this secret dread of ours that there's got to be more. And even worse, it's like is we ask the question, "Is there more?" And I'm just missing it. Or even worse than that, we we think you know what there isn't more, and everyone's just pretending that there is. So Jesus is newly risen from the dead, and he he joins up with a couple disciples that are making their way from Jerusalem back to a place called Emmaus, the city. And so these two men are walking on this road and all of a sudden Jesus appears and starts talking to these people and it's found in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stopped, they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, he he stops, he looks at Jesus and says, "Have you been living under a rock these past three days?" And ironically, he had. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> he, he th- this guy's saying to Jesus, "Are are you an idiot?" How do, you, how do you not know what's taken place? And he goes on then to explain to Jesus, they, not, they don't know it's Jesus, but they go on to explain to this person what's, been, what's, what's taken place. And Jesus, by the way, asked him in verse 19, well, what things? And in case you didn't think sarcasm was in the Bible, there you go. And not only in the Bible, but from Jesus. Sadly, they tell him about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They, they speak then about the religious leaders. They say the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Well, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus just listens, and then he speaks. He says, oh, how foolish you are. He says, And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So when they arrive at the village, these two persuade Jesus, whom they still don't recognize and who has just called them fools, to eat with them. Again, if it's me and I'm on a journey and somebody ambushes my journey and then calls me a fool, I'm like, hey, have a great rest of your evening. I'm not inviting him to dinner. But these guys do, which probably says more about them and a lot about me, but they invite him to dinner and they say, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread and began to give it to them, and then all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And as quickly as they recognized him, he disappeared. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? There was something on that road where they there was something burning inside of them where they knew there was something going on here. They just didn't know what it was. They didn't recognize the situation. The heart condition of these people is actually twofold. It's slow and it's burning, which is kind of an interesting dichotomy because I think it's more common in all of us than we really care to believe. I think one definition of Christ's followers might be people of the slow burning heart. You know, typically when you are called slow, it's, um, it's not usually a affirming connotation, but But in the case of Christ followers, we are people of the slow burning heart. Sorrow and hope, awe and self-pity, wonder and worry, believing and doubting, yes and no. It seems like all of those things are intertwined and, and they pull us one way and they tug at us another And Jesus walks that road with us. I think there's something in us that when we become Christ followers, we think that we have to have it all together and we we can't ever doubt and we can't ever worry. But but the story reminds us that actually Jesus walks with us even in the midst of our doubt and our worry. Jesus walks that road with us. But oftentimes we look straight at him and we don't recognize him. Jesus opens up the Scripture to us, and often there's something that happens that's warming us. That's it, we we're there's something. But sometimes we're reading the Scripture and it absolutely scorches us. Our encounters with Jesus are mostly like that. They're these fleeting glimpses. These quick moments, these little ambushes that take place in our life, and we're left with the question, didn't our hearts burn with something there? Didn't something just take place where we just recognize that there's something spiritual or something of a dynamic that's taking place that wasn't caused by us? I love this story because it really is one of the more human responses Because we begin to see that grief both blinds us to Jesus, but it also gives us a perspective of Jesus that we've never seen before. These two people were in the midst of their grief. All of their hopes and dreams were crucified. There were rumors of a resurrection. There were rumors, but they hadn't seen him yet. There was no proof. And in the midst of their grief and their loss, they didn't recognize Jesus, but later on saw him like they've never seen him before. This journey, whether it's 12 steps or 12 million steps, is haunted in our lives by what ifs. What if I made this decision instead of that decision? It's filled with With whys. Why, why did this have to happen? Why was I diagnosed with this? Why? It's filled with whys and what ifs. It's filled with like nostalgia of looking back and it's filled with, with lament, like this, this grieving that takes place. But one of the greatest takeaways from this story is in verse 21, where it says, We had hoped. See, Jesus walks with us, but seldom do we recognize him. And when we do, that moment, that, that fleeting moment is sparked by not some grandiose thing. It's usually sparked by him showing the nail prints in his hands, or it's, it's shown through the breaking of bread together, that it's often in these little tiny moments that we get to experience Jesus the most. And just as suddenly as we can see Jesus appear, suddenly he can disappear again. We are the slow-hearted and the burning-hearted. And these two things cross together. One of our persistent cultural myths that we have is the myth of fulfillment. The promise that on this earth you are going to get what's coming to you that you're going to get yours, that you're, going to, that you're going to experience all of the things that you want, all of the things that you need, that you think you need, and, and there's this constant pursuant of fulfillment in this world. And it's not just a Hollywood myth. I think it's a Christian myth, maybe especially a Christian myth. I'm, I'm just one book away from fulfillment. I, I'm just one conference of, of going to a conference and, and experiencing the fulfillment. I'm one, one significant experience or insight short of fulfillment. If I just attend this marriage conference, I'll find fulfillment in my marriage. If I, if I just go on this missions trip or I get involved in a real community of people who are fellow believers if i pray more then i'll be fulfilled that's the myth and it pushes us and it lures us it's honestly it's the it's the the constant thing i'm I'm expected to dispense as a pastor like chemo to all of the spiritually, emotionally, physically, unfulfilled terminal people who come into this place. The problem is, is we try to find fulfillment in all of these things. And the best that I can tell in scripture, true fulfillment does not come this side of heaven. It doesn't. What I see is, is the promise of peace. I see the promise of joy in our life. I see, I see promises, but I also see these, the, the, these statements like there's going to be suffering. There is going to be tribulation. There is going to be soul piercing. What I see is in, in Hebrews chapter 11 where, where it, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses. And how the great cloud of witnesses are there and they are cheering us on in our journey. And yet, some of these people who are cheering us on in our journey are the very people who experienced jeers and flogging. They were chained, they were put in prison, they were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were, these were people who, who wandered in the wilderness wearing goat skins and sheep skins, and they lived in caves and in holes in the ground. And Hebrews reminds us that none of them received what had been promised. See, the the portrait of the faithful is not the same as the portrait of the fulfilled. What defines them, what defines all of us on this road, this journey that we're on, is hope. What defines these two people is a slow burning heart. What defines them is a a longing, a knowing in their bones that in spite of their loss, in spite of grief, in spite of aloneness, that there's something more. There's something else. There's something better. What defines them is a, a shaky but unshakable conviction that Christ, although they have only seen him, as scripture talks about, through a glass dimly, these these different experiences of God that someday they will see him face to face. But for now, on this road, their slow hearts burn. We don't know much about these two disciples on this road. We, we read on, and Luke tells us that they, they ran to tell the other disciples, the other eleven, and that Jesus himself showed up again and again and he calmed their doubts. He, he confirmed his resurrection. He opened their minds to scripture. He, he commissioned them for world missions and then he promised them the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. But these two people, these two individuals on this road, they get lost in the crowd. I mean, one of them's named Cleopas. Anybody else know anything about Cleopas other than? being on the road to Emmaus? No, you don't. We don't know anything about them. And then there's the one that has no name. It's like the song, right? Like the street. It's the, there's no name. doesn't even get mentioned in Scripture. First service got the U2 reference. You guys just... <laughs> I was pretty proud of myself. Just, that's an old album, The Street That Has No Name. So... He doesn't even get his name or she because culturally maybe the name was omitted because it was a woman, potentially. But he or she doesn't even get a mention in the story. You contrast that with people like Peter whose cowardice but also whose courage, like we have insight into who Peter is. You look at Thomas, and Thomas was doubting, but, and he's even known as doubting Thomas, but then he was one of the most faithful of the disciples. We have a picture of who he is. You've got Paul, and Paul is this, this person who's like so candid and so uh, just honest with his opinions, but he's also very tender towards people and towards God. You've got these, these pictures that make these people unforgettable, but then you've got these two individuals that we know nothing about. And I wonder if, if maybe, this is just this is my, this is me being at dance all night last night, not dancing, but me being at dance, and, and maybe this is just just me, but I wonder if, if possible that maybe these two are left so ambiguous so as to insert ourselves into their place. They're void of any sort of description other than their hearts are slow and burning. I think they're like all of us. My question would be to them, I wonder if they were fulfilled after this encounter with Jesus. Jesus shows up. They experience Jesus face to face. I'm curious as to whether or not they were still fighting with their spouses or yelling at their kids. Jeremy said something about having an interaction with the child. We had interactions with our children this week. It must have been the week of Pastor's Children's. I wonder if they found some sort of fulfillment to the point that they stopped yelling at their kids, they stopped fighting with their spouse, they, they stopped doubting, they stopped having days of feeling both empty and heavy inside, that, that all of a sudden there was no more despairing, no more worrying over whether or not they were going to have enough money trickle in to pay the onslaught of bills. Never again. I, I wonder if, if they ever miss Jesus again. We don't know because we're not told. But if the stories of the other disciples give us any sort of clue, I think the best response to that question, were they fulfilled, is to answer the question, well, I think that's the wrong question. Was Paul fulfilled? Was Peter fulfilled? Was John? See, it's the wrong question. Fulfillment isn't the business of while we're here on earth. Fulfillment is heaven's business. Paul and Peter and John and Cleopas and the other guy. How horrible is that? The other guy. What they all had in common was that the thing that they had hoped for, that Jesus would not only come to redeem Israel, but redeem the whole world, the very thing that they hoped for was a sure hope. Their longing was not a hollow, wishful thinking. It was, in fact, a compass in their heart. It was something that drew them that no matter how long the road was that they were on, that they were going to keep going down that road. No matter, as verse 29 says, that the day is almost over, no matter that their hearts are slow with doubt and broken with grief, maybe even then, especially then, their hearts still burn. And they know that this journey is a, this journey's a good one. It's leading somewhere. And the best part of this picture, is that this journey that we are on and even in the midst of times where it feels like all of our hopes and dreams have been lost. We can have hope in the sure foundation of God, but we don't have to walk this journey alone. One of the greatest pictures is when they're, they're sitting there at the table and they, one says to the other, didn't our hearts burn while we were walking on that road. The reason it's so important to do this journey of faith together is because sometimes when we miss Christ, we have somebody next to us saying, didn't you feel that? Didn't you recognize that? Didn't you sense that there was something burning in your heart? That was Jesus. We may miss it, but we have people with us who remind us that's Christ. Let's pray. Father, this this journey that we are on, and I'm I'm making somewhat of a blanket statement and a recognition that most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, have made a decision to walk this path with you. It might be a false assumption, but it's an assumption. This journey is difficult, and there's times in which we don't sense you are with us. We sing songs about you, especially around Christmas time. We use your name, Emmanuel which means God with us. But we find ourselves in this journey in difficult circumstances in the midst of grief or loss or disillusionment and we find ourselves actually not even believing that you are with us. And oftentimes that's just that we miss that it's you. We don't recognize you. I God, if there's one thing that as we as we conclude our time today, if there's one thing that we could all just have in common is that the hope is sure. The hope is true. The hope is right. That, that even in the midst of a difficult circumstance or life, we can have hope of something greater, of something better. And so, God, we, we put our trust in you we put our trust in the, the true hope, the sure hope and foundation of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, let us rest in the promises that we can have peace and we can have joy. We can have love and grace and long-suffering, Lord, that we can be a people who experience all of your promises Even in the midst of very difficult times. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who feels as though you have not been with them, God, that just as those two walking on that road, you appear to them and they get to see you in a way they've never seen you before. God, I pray that that takes place today. That we would experience you. We would know you better than we've ever known you before. God, for every one of us, Let us be a people who are representations of you, even in the midst of challenging times. God, we love you. We surrender our life to you. We commit to not try to attain some sort of false fulfillment, but to find all of our hope in you. In Jesus' name, Amen. to invite the ushers to come, and they're going to receive our offering this morning, and. If you filled out the card, you can drop it in there and, and uh, I'm going to pray and just give you a moment to, to finish that up. Father, we receive our tithes and offerings this morning as we, as we typically do in this time of our, of our service, really not as, uh, it could be easy for us to get into a ritual or uh, a rote um, legalistic discipline or something along those lines, but really we, we do this as a part of our worship, as a part of our surrender. It's really a reminder for all of us to that you have all of us, not just all of this over here, but, but you have all of us, including our finances, the thing that probably is one of the most challenging things to surrender in our culture, but we surrender all to you. And God, I pray that as you As we do that, Lord, that you would continue to do what only you can do, and that's change lives. Restore marriages. Bring healing to the brokenhearted. Lord, you can do that. God, we love you, and we give you all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can drop your card in there as well. And then after the baskets come by, we're just going to stand and we're going to we're going to sing, and there, there's a the song that we're going to sing, we're going to sing Holy Spirit. The, the song that we're about to sing is, is oftentimes sung in a, kind of with this understanding. It, it's, it's the song, Holy Spirit, that it, it says in the lyrics, you are welcome here. And I think for us, it's, it's easy as, as Christians to just kind of come in, and we sing these songs, and we say, Hey, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. You're welcome here. Like, like in, in the room, you're welcome. You're welcome to be in this church, in this building. But but I wonder today if maybe there's some of you that just need to, as you're singing, say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You're welcome in my life. Will, will you change my life? Will you make me more aware of your presence in 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 the 90% of the life that I live outside of this place. Can we stand and, and sing that together?